times I've recorded, arguably even three times I've recorded, I have put off having sex in order to record, <laughs> because the material yeah. for the show is time-sensitive. Running train on a girl can happen pretty much, you know, whenever I, whenever yeah. I ask. <laughs> so, all, all you need to know listening to the episodes recently is knowing that I am... Uh, completely sexless and s- sipping this show up my nose like a healthy dose of cocaine. <laughs> this story in particular. Yeah. This story I've been fucking sitting, like, itching my neck, like, I wonder what happens next. <laughs> like, you know, like someone who whose track marks are starting to show. I am hoping that, um, I've, I've sort of, I spent some time in the shower thinking about it. Out gurgles, of... gurgles, and Bugman. <laughs> gurgles is like sitting there looking at your balls, and Bugman's on the ceiling, like fucking yeah, <laughs> shooting right, right. his dick. He's ready to go. Um, I want out of the eighteen stories, I want three of them to tie in with another story, with another narrative. Just like and and if it's, I don't want all of them, right? Like that's that's very clear to me. But I want there to be some semblance of the author imagining an entire universe. And Do having you... at least enough connection to, like, bounce them off. Now, when you say connection, are you talking about, like, the fact that Brad told a story last episode and Brad was a part of a story the last episode? Or, like, the fact that Clive was the subject of two different stories? Are you asking, like, I'm asking crossover? crossover. Shit. You know, like, that's kind of my, uh... If crossover, hope. if crossover doesn't happen, the least I hope for is for the narrator to be like, hey guys, I'm starting to notice some creepy stuff happening around me and I'm actually like worried. Like, yeah, like yeah. I hope the meta almost breaks mm-hmm. and I hope he kind of like, I don't know, the first two parts were, were kind of him saying some some weird shit has happened in my life. What I want him to at least chime back in on at some point is, hey, while meeting all of these crazy people, something crazy kind of happened to me. Yeah. I, I It would be easy to do. Um, Manifest what I, the, uh, the story together. Absolutely. What I'm worried is that this dude just tells... 18 really good stories and then mm-hmm. fucks off. And then off. moves on, yeah. Yeah, like, like if he gets to 18 and isn't saying, I regret all of the research I've been doing thus far and I never mm-hmm. should have dug this deep. I um, mean, it wouldn't tie in with the title. Exactly. Like, and that's that's and that would be a disappointment. Yeah. Um, 
it is a possibility. I'm not going to deny that. But I am sitting here, like, ready for there to be some type of acknowledgement, mm-hmm. I suppose. Because thus far, he's just... And I, I do remember, I, th- I believe it is a guy. He's just studying all of this shit, being told all of these stories. And for the most part, he's been like, well, wasn't that strange? Like, he doesn't really talk about it. He hasn't really talked about how it's affected him Mm -hmm. since, like, part two or part three. uh, Since the part where he shit his pants. Right. In his own story. In his own story, which is part one. Yeah. (laughs) No, he he did mention, um, like, when he met with Clive... Like, Clive wouldn't take his eyes off the corner. Like, that's a very uh, real yeah, thing yeah. he noticed. When he um, when he was recounting what happened to Aunt Mary, he was like, and let this be a lesson to all of you, that, mm-hmm. like, when you're lonely, like, you know, like, he, he was... He was waxing poetic, but I want it to be more than that. Yeah. You know, I want him to fucking commit. And that's ironic, coming from me. <laughs> trauma. So anyway, when I'm in danger. <laughs> so uh when when we look back on part one, um which would you say was your was your favorite story? Um And you could rationalize it however you want, because yeah. for me it comes down to one. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hadn't really thought of that. Um but Bugman certainly is the one that stuck with me the most, but I don't, I wouldn't call it my favorite. <laughs> right. You know, like it definitely was not my favorite, but it's, it's the one that I was thinking about the most in the past week. I, I, I really wanted to, and like, I even Googled it and I saw some like fan art of Gurgles and Bugman, and I really wanted to make it the background to that first episode when we recorded, but it yeah. really just didn't fit the, the aspect ratio of our title screens. But there's some pretty fun fan art, if anyone wants to give that a Google. People people took the whole Gurgles and Bugman thing real, oh, yeah. real seriously. It, it, it is the type of thing you can run with. Well, it's the like, creepypasta shit. Yeah. It's a clown and a, and a mutant insect. It's yep. literally two things that... 95% of the creepypasta audience is afraid of. Mm-hmm. Like, no shit. <laughs> it <laughs> it's going to haunt you. It had enough structure yeah, where... To you also can, be a good story. Yeah, like, it, it's it's written well, but enough mystique that anyone can do whatever they want with it. Fair. Yeah, I think, I think when you look back at all of the stories, you know, almost all of them are like a be careful what you wish for type of, like... You know, you learned too much. You know, that mystique that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. But that's the only one with, like, without an answer. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, we, cause, we learned... Because you're kind of in your head, you're like, oh, the well, little you girl brought it up. Him, but... You brought it up that it could be um, the narrator, you know, um, forgetting... Uh, or finding a way to mentally cope with having killed someone. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even put that together, but I asked myself, what if these supernatural beings do exist, and now you're just saying, well, they exist, and then the story ends. You know, that's mm-hmm. almost creepier. Yeah. Because... They're in, out there somewhere. Because Not part, my problem. Part one is very much like, 
I had a I had an experience with a ghost once, and it could have cursed me, but I didn't look at its face. I learned something today. Mm-hmm. Part two is when I was a little kid, I watched some creepy shit, and it happened, and uh, I saw it happen, and that's it. <laughs> so, and then part yeah. three is like Aunt Mary once killed two guys, <laughs> or or you know one of them killed the other to replace the one, which. It could have just been a guy who looked at a rich old biddy and said, I want that money. So he mm-hmm. killed the husband, hit him under the floorboards, and then looked close enough to him yeah. that he like started freaking the ant out. You know, that one, the whole doppelganger thing, can almost be realistically pushed into a corner. And then you get to Clive's story about looking in the corner and seeing... A three-headed goat demon, mm-hmm. and you're just like, mm, well, that's... you sure Clive wasn't just on acid? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like I'm not sure if I believe that. Um, Brad's story about the three kids in the car and the time loop mm-hmm. is more of like a. It's it's more. Um... Are you guys also sure you weren't on acid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in the forest for three days. Uh, it was certainly the the Twilight Zoniest it of absolu- the stories. It absolutely was. Um, and then I think we get to the last one, which is fallen out of my mind completely. <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I still have it written I down. was, uh, I was certainly inebriated by the time we got to that story. I, I have all the titles written down somewhere. Okay. Cracks and Bones. Which one was that? Um. Cracks and Doesn't cracks, sound familiar. Cracks and Boners. I'm sure. I'm sure more than one pe- person in the audience is like yelling at us, like, "Shh, uh, you fucking morons! It's, it's this! Oh, How could you forget this?" I remembered. I got it. Once, once I thought of bones, I was like, "Makes sense." Okay. Um, this is the one where the guy had a girlfriend, and they lived in an apartment with a skeleton oh, yep, in yep, the yep, wall. Yep. And, and she then, like and had the, the weird sensory thing. Right. And she, yeah. and she lived the next, I think they said like four to eight years. Yeah. Um, haunted by the skeleton in the wall. And then when the parents found her dead, mm-hmm. she was in the wall yeah. and everyone was like, Ooh, spooky for me. Well, that's chalked up to a girl with a weird sixth sense. Yeah. Um, I think perpetuates that, her own demise. Yeah, like she she crawled into the wall to make sure that nothing was in there, and then couldn't get out. Perhaps, you know, like, and and I mean, Perhaps. she was she That's was one um, way to read it. I certainly some didn't type read of it addict. That, that happens sure. to these, you know. The, oh, absolutely. That happens to people all the time. Where they do you have a, a, a motel hotels. room, <laughs> OD, die in the hotel room, and they don't find it for another. Two, three weeks. You know, I if she was stuck in the wall for three it's days. It's funny how much you remember of the story now that I bring it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like, I didn't put that together at all. We didn't even talk about that. Mm-hmm. For me, I read it as it could, it was mysterious. Like, yeah. like, you know, they find, they find a body in their, um, in their wall and it dates back to some mob hit in I think the early 1900s they mentioned something like that and then they said it was a rough neighborhood and right. you know the neighborhood had had come up vastly for me i almost thought i mean this is just the way i put it together is that someone did that to her and put her in the wall the almost huh. the same way like a 100 years later yeah like which or, is even or you owe me weirder. money type of thing sure you know um, you know, 
I don't I don't necessarily know how I thought about it, but yeah, like her climbing in the wall to see if anything was there and then being unable to get out and just end up dying there is is poetic. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know why I didn't read it that way. But um but that's the interesting part of these stories is you mm-hmm. can read each of them probably three or four different ways. Yeah, you you um, let the imagination if, Yes, if you let your imagination go and there is no limit then you could rationalize the ending of these episodes as multiple things. And it, and it does come down to a pseudo-supernatural kind of construct most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, it's interesting stuff. And I'm definitely enjoying reading it. Mm-hmm. We really only talked about it for like these 10 minutes. Are you ready to jump in? Um, when you look at the first story that we're going to jump into... Uh, do you not hear uh, Qui-Gon Jinn in your head oh, yeah. saying, Absolutely. saying there's always a bigger fish? Mm. Um, this, the, the first story I'm going to be reading tonight, uh, the ninth story in this collection, is called Bigger Fish. And it makes me think of uh, that movie Big Fish, Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the sequel to that. Uh, but it's about him coming back to life after dying in that first movie. Let me tell you the bigger fish. I just got out of hell, son. And 28 days later, bigger fish edition. Jim Caviezel sitting there. Is he still standing in the river? He's just like, dad. Uh, yeah, no, um, bigger fish. I just assume, is this story going to be about fish? Um, <laughs> I assume it is, but is I, that a metaphor for something? Yeah, I I almost think of it like in the um, what's the name of that show? Uh, Mad Men. Like yeah. I'm imagining someone in a suit looking like they they came straight out of I think that was the 20s uh-huh. uh, or the 50s or something. Yeah, but straight out of uh, Mad Men in a suit, going, you know, uh, well, boys, let's talk. Yeah, we got some big fish. Yeah. We gotta catch some big fish tonight, eh, Louie? Um, yeah, so this this is gonna be a, a continuation of the Curious Mind is a Terrible Curse series, uh, Bigger Fish, from Reddit No Sleep. This is part nine. Part nine. Well, boys, let's talk. Malcolm grinned through a beard that looked like a mangy kitten had stuck to his face. Do you have those ciggies for me? This was the last of our three meetings with Malcolm, a model inmate. Why, why am I surprised? We we literally read yeah. a story yeah. called, <laughs> called Big Fish, didn't we? And we did the same thing then, too. And where we said we, the same we were thing. Like, I, like, I wonder what this is about. Is this about. actually about fish? No. <laughs> now I know creepypasta and no sleep lore. When fish are mentioned, they're not talking about fish. They're talking yeah. about prison. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it was New Fish. New yes, fish that's was, what it was. That's New what it was. Fish was the story we read, and it was fantastic. But now I need to fucking learn once and for all that fish means inmate, like prison. Yeah. So there's a bigger fish, which means there's a bigger inmate. All right. This was the last of our three meetings with Malcolm, a model inmate. He was exceedingly polite and friendly, a stark contrast to the violent murders he was imprisoned for. 
I had agreed to help Steve with his postgraduate psychology thesis. This involved some field work interviewing dozens of patients. Most were fairly mundane, a couple were truly horrifying. And Malcolm's was by far the most memorable. The interview had been set up by Steve's mentor, a jovial Dr. McKenzie. He thought it would be both a valuable experience and a character-building exercise to meet someone with a deeply disturbed past. As an added bonus, he would be amused to have Steve squirm a little. So here I was locked in with a psychopath, because friends don't let friends accidentally get murdered doing homework. <laughs> Our first meeting with Malcolm was unproductive. Our thoughts were mostly focused on trying not to get killed. As the interviewer, Steve was too self-conscious, too careful in avoiding saying the wrong thing or making sudden movements that might be misinterpreted as provocation. In reality, we had nothing to fear. Though he confessed to the murder of six people four years ago, Malcolm had not shown the slightest violent tendency since. His good behavior had earned him the privilege of participating in the program. As Malcolm never had visitors, he was very pleased to finally have some. The second meeting a week later was more relaxed. Malcolm opened up about his childhood. He was an only child in a middle-class family in the middle of suburbia. A rebellious youth, he had run away from his home at 17 to elope with a girl his parents disapproved of. Shit, is this me? <laughs> For two years, they roamed the country, taking up odd jobs, short-order cook, bussing tables, minor theft, until she got bored and left him for a richer fling. Yes, this is a story about me. <laughs> Heartbroken, he endured a few more years of drifting until his stubborn pride relented, and he made his way back home to ask his, for his parents for forgiveness. He came back to find a foreclosed sign on a derelict house. His parents had spent their fortune searching for him, until they were tragically killed in a car accident a year earlier. Oh, shit. He spent the next years drowning his guilt with whiskey, using up what little remained of his inheritance. On the night of his 34th birthday, he stumbled to a wharf to drown himself more permanently. Sitting on the dock, swinging the last of his Jack Daniels, he also drunk in the serenity of his surroundings the boats bobbing up and down gently on the water, the twinkling lights reflecting playfully off the surface, the gentle lapping sounds of waves against the pier. Oh my god, is this actually about fish? <laughs> he gazed at the horizon that beckoned with the promise of things yet to see and experience. He decided he wasn't ready to go just yet, or perhaps he was too cowardly to go. He wanted to live. He didn't find God, but he did find hope. A reason to live. So he sobered up, worked steadily, and saved up until he could afford a small fishing boat that doubled up as his home. He loved to travel over that horizon when he could and drop his fishing line and just enjoy life on the water. There were many other things he wanted to see and do, but they would have to wait until he saved more money. But now, at our third and final meeting, he wanted to know just one thing. 
what drove Malcolm to brutally kill Todd Weber, his wife Tracy, their sons Jack and Ryan, their uncle Bill, and another victim that could not be identified from their remains, we had to know what made Malcolm snap. Steve handed Malcolm the box of cigarettes. Malcolm grabbed them giddily and took a whiff. Thanks, boys. Easily do. Nicely. He grinned, putting the box away in his pockets. Malcolm didn't smoke, but many of the inmates did. No doubt that box would buy him a few favors. That's probably what I would do if I were ever in prison. You'd be the guy who gets things? Yes. Smuggler? Um, well, I would also... I like The first thing I would do is figure out a D&D group. Because that's like... A, <laughs> it's a massive thing it is in a prison big thing systems in, prison systems, in yeah. America. Yeah. Um, and then I would try and either uh, scribe or transport books. Uh, and, you know, when you have papers, it's easy to smuggle cigarettes in them. I've learned how to suck dick real good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm... I couldn't say that with a straight face. Yeah. <laughs> Alright. I'm not saying I would be the, the roughest and toughest in, in prison, so I, I'm... I'm sure there's somebody I'm that I'm... I'm not saying I wanted to. <laughs> to be good at it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, shit. Uh, so you'll be wanting to know what happened that night then, eh? Yeah, why did you do those things in the police report? Steve pushed his body forward in his chair and pressed his arched fingers against his lips. I have read the report then. You already know what happened. The official court filings duly noted that Malcolm had confessed to the murders and pleaded insanity. A straightforward case, given the crime scene they found. We've done our research, yes, we've gone through the court transcripts, but you never gave a motive. You never explained why you did it. Malcolm slumped back into his chair, and his body language noticeably shifted to one of apprehension as he crossed his arms and started chewing on his nails. He stared intently at the security camera in the corner of the ceiling for several moments, furiously debating with himself in his mind. Finally, he whispered, Okay, I'll tell you. I've wanted to tell someone, but couldn't. If you tell anyone else, though, I'll deny it, and I'll, I'll tell them you're crazy, okay? Steve exchanged glances with me and then nodded calmly. I leaned forward with a pen in my sweaty hands, ready to start furiously scribbling notes as Malcolm closed his eyes and retold his story. It was a chilly Saturday night. I was in a happy mood. I just filled smoother sailing my boat with fuel. I was going to take her out to my favorite fishing spot. I upped anchor at 8 p.m. and pushed off the wharf, hitting full throttle when I got to open waters. My spot was three hours away, but I don't mind. I love the sailing, that feeling of the cold air and sea spray rushing over you. You know what that feeling is? It's being alive. I haven't felt that in a very long time. Visibility that night was great, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Being winter and all, there weren't any other boats about. It was just me, the sea, and the stars. Just the way I like it. Around 9.30, me radar picked up another boat about five miles ahead. Never saw anyone out there in deep waters that time of night before, so I went to check it out. I was on the way, anyway. Closing in, I saw the glow of a sweet-looking yacht, one of the millionaire boats. 
all fancy and slick and big and lit up like a Christmas tree. It must have been an 80-footer. She was a real looker. I throttled back to get a good peek along her starboard side. She was the Mary C. And that's M-E-R-R-Y-S-E-A. I could see her name tattooed all fancy-like on the classy ass of hers. A couple of guys were on the deck and the family inside the cabin setting up dinner. I waved neighborly hello as I sailed by, but only the guys on the deck saw me, and they just stared and wrinkled their nose like I was some bad smell. So I changed I, my hand wave to an extended middle finger, and I sped off laughing. No way I was letting them spoil my mood. I finally made it to my spot and baited my lines and dropped them in the water. I sat back and enjoyed my fishing in peace for a few hours. I was hoping to stay there the whole weekend, but a storm warning flashed up, not wanting to be caught in a storm. So far from harbor, I pulled up my lines and made my way back. I did catch a good pink snapper, so it wasn't a wasted trip. I was a bit surprised to see the Mary C pop up on the radar again on my return route. It was getting around 4.30 a.m. now, and she hadn't moved at all. Getting closer, I could see that she was still lit up, but something was wrong. There was a big dent along the starboard waterline, and she was listed slightly port side. I thought she may be taken on water. I got in close and yelled out for the crew, didn't hear anything back but the waves slapping against the boat. I circled round slowly and checked the radio for distress signals. There was nothing on any of the frequencies. A lifeboat was still rigged up portside untouched. The crew would still be on board. I maydayed the Coast Guard and moored me boat back to the back of the yacht. There was a boarding ladder. I climbed to get to the deck. The lights were all on, so I yelled out again. No answer. Nothing. The deck seemed normal. Some half-drunk glasses of wine on the table and some untouched food. Nothing unusual. I went into the cabin and noticed that the doors were busted, like something big crashed into them from the inside trying to get out. The wooden frame was all splintered. I yelled out again to see if everyone was alright and still no sound. Inside her was another table set up with dinner. Everything was still laid out neat, no sign of struggle or trouble, like the crew just vanished as they were tucking in. There was a galley next to the dining cabin. It was messy, but no different to what you'd expect after cooking. I could smell faint onions and meat in the air. Ahead was the forward cabin with the ship's navigation and a large lounge area. I was trying to check out the ship's logs when I heard sudden crashing sound behind me, back where the dining table was. I rushed back there, but it was only some glasses slipping off the table. The boat was now at a pretty bad angle. I saw some stairs leading down to the crew quarters and thought I'd quickly check them out, you know, before the ship sunk, just in case there were people trapped and needing help. Heading down, the carpet was already wet with seawater on one side. I went down the corridor, knocking on rooms and opening doors and yelling out for anyone who could hear. At the end was the master bedroom. I should have left the boat then and there. I wish I never opened it. There's some things that are just better left unknown. But it had seemed empty, like all the others at first. 
but I noticed some small shoes under some drapes like some kid was hiding behind them. I walked up slowly, whispering, hey kid, it's alright, there's nothing to be scared of, but we need to leave now. I got no response, not so much as a twitch. So I got in, real close, then ripped the drapes away. There was no kid there, just his shoes and his severed feet still in them, like something had ripped them from his body. I fell back and gagged. I ran into the ensuite to throw up and then saw the mirror was covered in blood. I stepped back and slipped on the wet floor, but it was blood, not seawater. I had the blood all over me. I saw four more shoes lined up in the bath with severed feet still in them, like the first. I screamed and ran as fast as I could back upstairs, but near the top I heard someone yell out to me. I was screaming and babbling, but they eventually calmed me down and cuffed me. The Coast Guard had arrived. They did a quick inspection and found more severed feet. They were in the closet of two of the other rooms I had checked out. They transferred me to the boat and detained me while they searched smoother sailing, and near my bunk they found one more set of shoes and feet other kids. I couldn't explain how it got there. Twelve shoes and fee and all. Six different people. They charged me then and there with murder and maritime piracy. When it got to my court hearing, I, I couldn't explain what had happened. I was the last person to see him alive. I was a thief in my youth and found uninvited on a rich guy's yacht. I had their blood all over me. Their remains were found on my boat. The Mary Sea had sunk by the mid-morning, taking any other evidence with it. What choice did I have but to plead insanity? Malcolm seemed to have aged twenty years as he finishes telling his story, but then he looked at us, smiled, and the age washed away along with the weight on his shoulders. When our time was drawing to a close, the guard arrived and was cuffing him back to his cell. Steve still felt he needed some closure. Hey Malcolm, so so you didn't do it then. You don't have to be here. We can, you know, we want to help you out. Clear your name. Malcolm only chuckled. What makes you think I want to get out of here? I confessed, didn't I? But why? Why confess to something you didn't do? That's that's crazy. Think about this. I know I've had a long time to think it over. And here it's not so bad. I'm watched 24 hours a day, someone's always checking on me, watching carefully who comes in and out, making sure I'm safe. One thing fishing has taught me is no matter how good you think you are, there's a bigger fish out there ready and waiting to eat you for lunch, or eat you for lunch. And outside, well, that thing is still out there, and still hungry. Out there, you have no one watching over you all the time, making sure you're safe. So who'd you think is really crazy, huh? That was the last we saw of Malcolm. Okay, so two things. Uh, first one, it, it's almost obvious that there was more to that story than he was willing to tell the interviewers. Uh, second thing, I do agree wholeheartedly that if I were to end up in some type of, like, life sentence situation, 
uh, that I was never going to get out of. I would much rather it be for something I didn't do than something I did do. Uh, just knowing like my levels of like self-esteem. Yeah. If I if I could look at myself and go, you fucked up, would be much harder then than if I can look to. at it and go, man, what else? Like it was my only option. Well, that's why the ending of the story is so interesting, and you could see it coming a mile away. Oh yeah, absolutely. He, he's very paranoid little guy i think ultimately having been you know chewed up and spit out by the system he feels like nothing's on his side so when he comes back this i don't know i don't even know how to rationalize it do you think it was a sea monster of some kind do you do you think it was a a person? Do you think I, what was going on? You know, even if, let's just run with the fact that he could have been telling the truth. Whatever killed those things, I could see his want to be like, no, right, yeah, arrest me. I want to be in a cage for the rest of my life. No one can come and get me in here. I get that. I think that whatever did it was sentient and had a conversation with him before the Coast Guard got there. Whatever did that to them looked at him and said, you're taking the blame. Or this is going to happen to you. But nothing in the story kind of points to that. Obviously, he wouldn't tell the interviewers about it. I think there's a lot more to that story that he didn't tell the interviewers. That's interesting. Because I almost read it as... As literal as he presents it. For me, it was more like a... I really couldn't explain any of this shit, but the more I thought about it, the more crazy I, I started to feel. No, because that's an easy one. Look, I called the Coast Guard. I found them like this. Yeah. You can't blame me for something. Like, if I did this, why would I be the one to call the Coast Guard here? You know, that that is the simple enough explanation that you could sit down with a lawyer and, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty. You can't tell me that that's not what happened. Yeah, but in nowadays system, it's guilty until proven innocent. I mean, maybe, but I think any... For the brutality of how they found in, like, kids, like, the minute you put kid killer on it, it kind of changes entirety. It's it's tough. I, I admit, you know, yeah. you, it, it would be something that goes to court, but, like, um, he reads me as a traumatized character, you know, like... He, for me, he didn't need to see what did it for him to accept that, that he didn't want to want to be around there anymore. And yeah. now, and now knowing, like, just think about it. Just think, what has the ability to almost single-handedly rip people from their feet, just leaving their feet? I don't know what that was about, but let's just say that. Something literally just ate them. Yeah, one by that's, one. That's kind of the, the, the image that part. I that I got is the kids hiding behind the curtain, and the monster brushes the, the curtain, curtain and just fucking chomps. Eats them. Yeah, and then the curtain falls back because it makes me think of there. almost like a giant snake. But snakes well, snakes tend to swallow sea things whole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the it's it's a it's adding a body to the sea monster that makes it a little bit of a problem for it to get all the way down to the last deck. Yeah. But but for me, it's just like. But again, it has to be something sentient in order to get the feet on his onto boat. his boat, which is what yeah, which is what changes things a little bit yeah. for me. Um, because then then there's intent. There yeah. is there is. You are now 
my target and I can now have this blamed on you. And now goes another year of me existing with no one knowing that I'm here. Kind yeah. of kind of yep. sentience behind it. Yeah, I mean, I'd chalk that up to aliens with a weird foot fetish. It's, it's almost like <laughs> the, uh, the idea from Dexter where after the first season they catch the other murderer... And he, you know, he's kind of like, oh, yeah. yep, that was that dude. Yeah, it was all that dude, you know. Right. He plants all his evidence from over the years on just one guy. And then, yeah. And then he takes the bait for all of and it. And then he's like, oh, yep, I got I got time this, to figure yep. my shit out later. No one no one thinks it's me anymore. I'm good. Um, That's cool. It was a cool story. Yeah, I, I, it, I liked it. It has us sitting here talking about it interested in it and i think that's what i like about it because mm-hmm. you don't read many stories that leave you almost perplexed i would yeah. say creepypasta and no sleep tend to have this let me over explain nature mm-hmm. and it demystifies the story yeah so it's interesting that you know it's a welcome change in my opinion um the next one we're going to be reading is called The Eighth Orphan. And uh, the only thing this makes me say is, hey, uh, uh, stop adopting. <laughs> if you're on your eighth. <laughs> yeah. If yeah, you're on that, your eighth, maybe, at that point, maybe you, you should just be doing orphan, kids. like foster kids. <laughs> or maybe it's someone in the system who's just like, this is the eighth kid I worked with, and, yeah. and he fucking ruined me. <laughs> Fate and destiny weave many threads throughout our lives. When we follow particular events, they often seem without meaning. Yet it's only when we step back do we see, uh, do we see start to see the bigger picture. Sorry. Sometimes yeah, there's weird yeah. typos in the story. I'm keeping it because that's how the story was written. Fair enough. <laughs> um, we see how the individual strands all the chance events, all the encounters we have, all connect together to document our past. I can tell that there are certain stories that have, like, no errors, and certain stories that have quite a few, and I think it is connected to a level of drunkenness by the author. <laughs> At least, like, that's where it's my, my imagination... Be read this, this one's yeah. about murderers and feet. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Wakes up in your own pile of vomit. They only make sense when we can see the whole tapestry, our chance encounters, our joys, our regrets, our fears, in the greater scheme of things. Everything has its place, even if we don't understand the reasons. And sometimes, in stepping back, we see those individual strands in a completely different light. We see how it all fits together. Doing so can illuminate the mysteries of our past but can also reveal that the truth is stranger and even hold more mysteries. What seemed like another routine interview turned out to be such a strand when Steve and I met with Satya. As we unraveled her story over several sessions, we found so many threads knotted together that by the end, we didn't know what to think or believe. Satya was another patient Steve was interviewing for his thesis. She was larger than life, figuratively and metaphorically. A generously proportioned woman with a boisterous and loving personality. 
we barely had the chance to introduce ourselves before she gave us both a hug and a greeting. She was like the most unlikely candidate for MDD, Major Depressive Disorder, aka Clinical Depression, we had ever seen. She had grown up in a Cambodian orphanage with six other kids. Though she never knew her parents, her childhood there was mostly a happy one. She was given a good education, even better than most other kids in public schools nearby. Uh, she had the chance to get a good career in accounting, uh, but growing up, though, she never felt her destiny was going to be great or important to the world. Instead, she felt her contributions would be to teach others to be great and important. So as a sign of appreciation for the opportunity she had been given, she became a teacher for the underprivileged kids. She loved her job and loved working with children, both in her own and those in her care. She had been in and out of therapy since the funeral for Father Abraham, the patron of their orphanage, about two years ago. Uh, Je Jesus? Jesuit. Jesuit priest from Portugal, he had moved from place to place before settling in Cambodia to do his work. He was not just a father in title, though. He had single-handedly raised seven orphans, providing them with food, shelter, and education when the rest of the world had all but abandoned them. Though it was now over 20 years since she had left to start a family of her own, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham and the other orphans would always be her first real family. Abraham Solo. She still remembered the day she got that fateful call. She was preparing dinner, as fate would have it. Uh, I'm going to push that. Vina da Alos? Vina, I would say, Vina Dalos? Vina Dalos. Vina Dalos? Now, the listeners of this podcast know I can't really read English. So when you start so to throw other you languages, get, you I'm get just like. the story ah. with all the weird fucking names. A traditional Portuguese dish of marinated pork. Oh, of course. Vina Dalos. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one. Uh, the way Abraham had first taught her. Abraham. <laughs> Couldn't just be Abraham. It had to be Abraham. Yeah. And, and it, I wouldn't stumble it over it if it was Abraham. Abraham. <laughs> Abraham. Uh, it was something she could she cooked once a month, not just because of the happy memories it brought her, but also because she was still experimenting with the recipes. After all these years, she couldn't quite seem to get the taste and texture exactly as she remembered it the first time it was cooked for her. When she picked up the phone, it was Channa, her best friend from the orphanage. She immediately sensed something was wrong with the quiet sobbing on the line. When told of father's death, she had screamed and collapsed in, in, into an inconsolable heap for hours. She booked the first flight she could back to Cambodia to attend the funeral the following week. She had joined Chana at the service, along with three other orphans she had not seen for years. And these aren't that bad. These aren't that bad. It's still funny. Yeah. That, that it's like, and let me introduce eight other people. <laughs> Alfonso, Kong, and Raksa. 
Alfonso. There's Alfonso? No, there's no L. He's oh. not Italian. Yeah, I was it's like, I, I was like, Alfonso. I got these. And then I go through and I go, no, you still fucked them up. <laughs> Alfonso. Alfonso, Kong, Kong, and Raxa. Raxa. Which I totally was about to say Raska, because that makes more sense. Oh, Raska. Yeah. Um... Kong is just a very large ape that is pretending to be human. Yes. I'm, I'm a child. I'm a child. It keeps signing, I'm a child. And everyone takes it. Everyone I, accepts it. I mean, he was an orphan, you know? He was. He was. Uh, after the orphanage is closed down, Abraham <laughs> joined a small <laughs> Abraham! He just... What gets me about Abraham, just follow me on this, is... When he gave everyone orders, you know, he, he had he had eight orphans, right? So we had to have a sense of humor. You know, whenever he was out working with his kids, he would be like, Hey Kong, Abraham hand me that screwdriver. <laughs> and Kong would look at him and be like, What? Abraham hand me that screwdriver, please. <laughs> and then like he'd sit down for dinner with Chana and Satya. And Raxa, and he'd be like, Will you Abraham me a plate, please? <laughs> so you just know. Just constant. You just know Abraham, like, everyone actually wishes Abraham was dead, <laughs> and they're actually really happy about it. So you remember when he used to use his name in puns all the time? I don't even know where the fuck just, I'm at. Just go uh, from wherever. After the orphanage had closed down, Abraham had joined a small mission in a rural village, spending the rest of his days praying in solitude. They were the closest thing Abraham had to a family. Most of the other attendees were strangers to Satya. Afterwards, the old group of friends caught up to reminisce about their childhood and swap memories of their father, 90% of which were about his puns. <laughs> no, I'm just reading. I saw the next name. Ah, <laughs> uh, fair enough. Us. Uh, Soon, conversation turned to the two other orphans that were not present. Let me introduce more people. Clementine. Clemente. 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 And Joaquim. Joaquim. I never would have gotten that one. Thanks for that fucking save. Joaquim. All right, listen. It's not Joaquin. It's not Joaquin. Joaquin Phoenix? No, it's not Joaquin. It's Joaquim with an M. Abraham had a sense of humor. He lost his M. And he replaced it with an N. Uh, what? Both had died years earlier. Their life cut all too short by fate and circumstance. Clemente was the their oldest brother and was fiercely protective of them growing up. Now think of how funny it would have been if the oldest brother's name was Clementine. <laughs> oh, person's just making shit up at this point. is so full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to spit fucking liquids all Sorry, over the place. Man. You're good. Oh, oh, okay. I'm really stoned. <laughs> Same. So this is extra funny to me. Uh, though he sometimes abused his position of, pa of being the oldest, as young boys tend to do. He would always be there to look after the kids when father had to leave the orphanage on business. Satya remembered, once during the water festival, 
A boy had stolen her toy water gun and fa that father had bought her. Clemente tracked that boy down and broke his nose. Fuck yeah. And spent a night in a prison cell for his effort. Ugh. That did little to change his ways, though. He was never shy of standing up for others, particularly the weak, and demanding justice. Like having an N instead of an M. <laughs> so it was on one fateful night that he saw a beggar having his meager belongings stolen. He was stabbed from behind as he was trying to prevent the minor robbery. Shit. His life was exchanged over a fight for 84 cents. Rest in peace. Jaquim. Jaquim. <laughs> Joaquim. Joaquim. His death was no less tragic. He had committed suicide a few months earlier. Damn. Kong, his roommate, was the person to discover Jay's body after returning from his shift at the grocery store. Walking into the bathroom, he found Jay lying on the floor with an empty bottle of bleach tipped over beside him. Fumbling for the phone to call for help, the medics had arrived too late. The bleach had burned through his throat, esophagus, and stomach. Well, no, girls don't know how to use the phone. <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> At Jay's funeral. It took him 45 minutes to call the fucking cops because he didn't know what 911 was in Portugal. At Jay's funeral. Joaquim. Kong had too distraught to say much more. I, I get it, man. I get it. I really do. That's so sad. It wasn't the planes that killed the beast. Beauty. Yeah, it was beauty. It that was, was the beauty. line. It was beauty. It was beauty who killed the beast. <laughs> but by the time of Abraham's a a Abraham's funeral, he was ready to reopen that wound. He admitted to the group that there was some information he left out in his report to the police. Oh, shit. That uh, Jay was still alive when he walked in. He was on the floor. That's so sad. Eyes were bloodshot, tears streaming down his face. And like any monkey seeing something in pain right in front of you, he just beat the fucking <laughs> yeah. shit out of and, it. And the misery! You're weak, you're weak, you are helpless, I am strong, and just fucking put Joaquin out of his misery. When he spotted Kong, he struggled to mouth some words. Kong got close enough to hear him whisper. We had eight orphans. Eight orphans. Before finally clutching his chest in pain and going into shock. He died before Afonso could make a call for medical help. I think he meant to say Kong and then lost his own name in the story. Yeah, it looks let's, like it. Let's continue. That would have meant nothing to the police but it immediately changed the mood of the group. A chill went up their spines. They had not spoken of it for years, but they each have always felt there was an extra orphan in their group. Oh, is this like a Mandela effect? 
where like your your mind alters information over time. Probably. Your perception like they just remember there being an extra kid their entire childhood. Yeah. But then when they grow up the kid's just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's like uh the, the opposite home alone. You know, the yeah. the the eighth orphan was there but so unforgettable that like <laughs> we've blanked it out of memory, like oh yeah. I, right. Yeah. Totally. Um they had not... Uh, yeah, I read that. None of them could ever remember seeing the eighth. They could not describe what he, question mark, looked like or where he was from. For as long as they could remember, there was always seven of them growing up with Father, Father Abraham. But, all, but they all had an unshakable, unexplainable feeling that someone was missing. Father Abraham had eight orphans. <laughs> and he killed all of <laughs> He killed at least one of them. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, when they had first spoken to Abraham about it, he had laughed it off and asked the children to count themselves and see. It would always come to, to six seven. and a monkey. <laughs> You can count the monkey if you want, as it just, uh, don't, uh, Abraham him that banana next to you. <laughs> oh, we have fun here. Um, when they had persisted in questioning, it was the first and only time they had seen Father get angry. He forbade them to ever mention it again, and would punish anyone who spoke of it. He said he did not want the community thinking that he could not teach his children as something as simple as counting to ten. Now that father had gone, it was as if the taboo had been lifted. So they spent the night swapping the secret memories they had held on to for years. Kong started by confessing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no one It's so weird. It's so it's crazy. It's crazy. Go uh, That he felt there was an eighth from the very first day they arrived. On the old bus to the orphanage, he recalled that they all paired up, and all eight passengers were filled. They could not have been an odd number of people, but the memory was so long ago that they all had different memories of who they sat next to. And everyone seemed accounted for. None of them could recall any person that didn't match the description of the seven. (laughs) Raxa then stepped the group through the activities on the first day. It was such a mix of emotions for them, with so many activities being shown around the small orphanage, learning the rules, meeting the guard dogs, being assigned beds, cleaning their areas, even learning to cook their own lunch. By mid-afternoon, after chatting individually with Father, they were all exhausted and had an afternoon nap. They didn't wake up again until dinner time. But there were always just seven beds in our room, stated Afonso. That means there were only seven of us, right? Let's see. There were... Three beds along the wall with the door, and four beds on the other side. I don't think another bed could have fitted in. 
They were big beds for little children, though, argued Chana. If we pushed two of them together, three of us could have slept in that. Maybe, but the beds n were never together, right? Father would not allow that. So that still leaves us with seven, retorted Afonso. What if the eighth didn't need to sleep? Everyone went quiet and looked at Ro Roxa. Well, I never told anyone this but father, Roxa continued. But on the first night, I couldn't sleep. I stayed in bed listening to you all sleep. I heard the door open, then saw the outline of a small boy at the door. I got up and said, Go back to bed, or father will get mad, thinking it was one of you. But then the boy turned around, then vanished. I almost screamed, except I was too afraid to. I just stayed under my blanket until morning. Father said it was just a bad dream. Oh, Lord. I always thought the orphanage was haunted, admitted Chana. I always hated going to the shower block by myself. It always felt like I was being watched. I thought it was you boys at first, but a few times I saw a shadow in the corner, but it would disappear when I looked at it. Yes, Jay did try and sneak Joaquin. a look. Joaquin did try and sneak a look at you once, but you know that one time Joaquim got in trouble for it. It wasn't him. He was making sausages with me and the other boys for dinner. Father punished him severely with the cane before, but he took it because he knew he was guilty from before. As the night progressed, more and more sightings came forth. An extra face in the mirror. The sound of another person breathing heavily when they were alone. Satya stayed extra quiet listening to each story with growing apprehension. Eventually, Chana noticed and asked her what's wrong, why she wasn't talking. I... I too saw the eighth. I remember now. Though I tried so hard to forget. Lord, I tried so hard to forget. Father told me it was a bad dream, a nightmare, and to forget, cried Satya. I kept seeing the boy too. I thought maybe he was a spirit. I thought maybe he was lonely. So I, I tried to make friends with him. I said hello when I could sense him around me. He always disappeared at first. But over the next few months, he stayed longer. He only comes out when you're alone. I thought he was shy. I thought he might also be hungry. So one night, I left some food for him under the bed. That night, I was woken by someone breathing and hissing in my bed next to me. I looked over and saw him. Then I screamed. I remember that night. You woke us all up and just kept crying. Then wouldn't tell us why, interrupted Kong. Shh! The whole group hissed and whacked Kong on the head to make him shut up. Let's Satya finish. I saw him. Father made me try to forget, but I still remember the boy. He lying in the bed with me 
except he had no eyes. It was all black and hollow. And when he he opened his, his mouth, there was no tongue. Just, just this horrible hissing sound. And he had no arms or legs, just like stumps, like someone had cut them off. He just lay there, looking at me, hissing in agony. Father said it was all a bad dream. He tried to make me forget, but I now remember. Satya repeated, rocking backwards and forwards. I remember. He looked like a big old angry thumb. <laughs> it had been over two years since that conversation. But to this day, Satya still had no choice but to remember. Because starting a few months ago, whenever she lies in bed with her eyes closed, she has heard the hissing beside her, and she has been too afraid to open her eyes. There are very few things more amazing than the human mind. A particular grouping of atoms forged in starfire, arranged and connected, in such a way that it yearns to comprehend the world around it. It's why every culture in history has shared stories by the campfire and the hope that with each telling our dark ignorance recedes just a bit further through enlightenment. From rubbing sticks for fire to launching spacecraft in less than a thousand generations our capacity for intelligence is overwhelmingly greater than what's needed to merely survive. It's as if we were meant for greater things. We are the very essence of the universe itself, given sentience so that it may understand itself better. The author is fucking hammered. Going through and typing <laughs> this shit like fucking. Yo, was that story crazy? Fucking Kong. When you think fucking about, universe. When you think about it, the universe is nuts, right? It's like, it's, it's like Alfonso with uh, an an L. It's like Abraham with an S. Uh. Abraham need another whiskey, buddy. <laughs> it's for this noble purpose that Steve pursued psychology, and I was eager to follow. Our hypothesis Steve was researching was that the mind was software. If it was programmable at all, we would truly unlock our tremendous human potential. And the way to do this was through the right combination of words. After all, our reality is shaped by our thoughts, and our thoughts are shaped by words themselves. Steve believes that words have a lot of power, much more than people realize. To underline his point, he gave me the following demonstration. If you take the red pill, <laughs> you can see just how far the rabbit hole goes. See, I was going to say he, he like made an O with one hand, and then he took his pointer finger and he just kind of rim rimmed it along the outside and then started sticking it the pointer finger in and out of the hole and then and then the narrator and Steve fucked. <laughs> uh, if I 
if I wanted you to do something, like scratch yourself, I couldn't ask you to do it. I could ask you. I could ask you to do it. But you would have no reason to want to. I can't command you to scratch. But as you sit there, reading these words in your head, you start to notice how your skin feels. I refuse to scratch myself. (laughs) Same. I'm stubborn. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you, story. You notice the the different temperatures at different parts of your body. You notice how the fabric on your clothes rub gently against your skin. You become aware of how it tickles the hairs of your arms and legs. The more you try and ignore it, the more you can feel it tingle. Fuck Don't you! Fuck, fuck you! Fuck you! I'm itching my head! Fuck you! My, my finger's tingling a little bit. I'm honestly, just like, honestly, uh, honestly, I'm a very itchy person, so just yeah. someone needs to say itch and point at me. I'll be like, you have magic! <laughs> it's like, it's my dandruff. I've had it for 20 years, but you're a fucking wizard. You can then sense it spread to other parts of your body. And the more you try not to think about it, the stronger the sensation. The more you fight it, the stronger your urge to scratch. I couldn't help but to subconsciously start scratching myself all over. I still do just thinking about it. I'm weak, I gave in immediately. (laughs) Where there wasn't a feeling before, I had a real physical and mental reaction, all from some carefully chosen words. Steve explained that this is the fun that this is fundamentally how hypnosis works. Unlike how Hollywood portrays it, though, there are certainly some limits to what it can do. It's not a sledgehammer that makes people do things strongly against their will, but a feather that tips the scales of suggestibility. Two areas that are true enough, though, is that it it is to help in recalling memories and to improve the powers of perception. To have the power of Sherlock Holmes, as Steve puts it, and Satya was a good subject to test this on. We didn't need Sherlock to come to the sickening conclusion that they'd they'd been consuming human flesh, though. Wait, what? We didn't need Sherlock to come to the sickening conclusion that they'd been consuming human flesh, though. Shaquem had... Joaquim! Joaquim... Whatever. It's going back to Jay. Joaquim! Jay had worked it out and was traumatized by the thought of it. Enough to drink bleach as if it would cleanse his soul. His, His last words were not just that they had eight orphans, but they had... Eight... Orphans. Uh, there's a better way to phrase that. Yeah. Hey, we've eaten uh, we've eaten children, so I'm gonna kill myself. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. I'm gonna die now. Oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> You're just sitting thinking about it. Uh, I really didn't. That one hit me. <sighs> what we needed. <laughs> My whole fucking arms are tingling right now. Abraham, me that kid's hand, won't you? I'm pretty hungry. What we needed Sherlock for was to uncover the mystery of why Father Abraham would commit such an atrocity. He was looking for the M. And who was the poor man? Or perhaps the D. (laughs) Satya agreed to being hypnotized with the appropriate safeguards in place to dig up more about her past. 
She went under a lot quicker and easier than Steve had expected, and it seemed this wasn't the first time she had undergone this process. Once she was relaxed and compliant, 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 we started asking her about her earliest memories at the orphanage. Thinking back to the first day, Satya recalled how excited she was to finally belong somewhere. She was happy to have new brothers and sisters to play with, and a father to teach her and look after her. Abraham had spoken to each of the children separately before their afternoon nap. Satya was very nervous when it came to her turn, and couldn't stop fidgeting. Abraham was very gentle, though, his soothing voice calmed her down tremendously. He asked her about her trip to the orphanage, what she had thought of the others, what she liked to eat. He said many things and talked so much in that hypnotic voice of his that she had fallen asleep during her interview. She also recalled how the orphanage always suffered from power outages. Every few days, the lights would flicker and dim because he was turning on the meat grinder and not turn on turn back on for a day or two it was such a common occurrence that father didn't even stop class when interrupted by a blackout for this reason electrical appliances were scarce at the orphanage they didn't have a TV air conditioning or even a fridge they grew vegetables in a large communal garden and the few animals they had chickens and a couple goats were kept for their eggs and milk rather than their meat. They ate economically during the week, but father always made sure there was a bit of extra food for some extravagance on Sundays. Satyaf spoke fondly of how Abraham would teach them to cook using the gas stove. Holy fuck! They started the story by saying, I'm trying to make this thing, I can't quite get the texture right. That just clicked. Yeah, that's because they're eating a different type of meat. Yeah. That's fair. Um, It clicked literally four words until they fucking, before they told me. And how Um, to prepare Vinodellus. Yeah. At this point, she had a sudden realization of why her recipe was never quite the same. It lacked the faint taste of disinfectant. To ensure a fresh supply of meat, for their beasts, it became clear that Abraham had to have kept the missing orphan alive for at least several months. Each week, Abraham would have sliced off some flesh, gave the meat to the the children to cook with, and the, the bones to the dog that guarded his quarters. He would have kept the orphan in his own quarters. It was the only place in the entire orphanage that was off limits. The children had never had never heard so much of, as a sound coming from his room, so the tongue would have been one of the first things to be removed. That doesn't stop you from screaming. He probably like severed the vocal cords yeah. or something. It would be how Abraham could get away with murder, leaving no evidence of his crime. It was hard to believe that father could be such a cold, calculating psychopath, but the threads were coming together. And the puns made it worse. 
a loose end was still the identity of the victim. We asked Satya to focus on the night she saw the ghostly boy in her bed. The night after Satya awoke screaming, Abraham rushed into the children's room some moments later. He held her, comforted her, and then asked her what was wrong. His, heart, his face hardened for an almost imperceivable moment as she described the limbless horror. His face returned to its familiar warmth as she hugged her and said, No, my child, my dear Satya, it was just a nightmare. It was just a bad dream. Come with me, child, and I'll help you forget. He asked the others to go back to sleep and took Satya to her, his quarters. She noticed it was a very sparsely furnished room, an old bed on one end, a weathered writing desk beside it, the rows of books lining the opposite wall. She noticed the faint smell of disinfectant mixed with balms lingering in the room. The far corner of the room was partitioned with a large curtain, opened enough to reveal a tattered mattress. Abraham made her lie down in his bed while he sat in the chair right next to it. He told her to close her eyes and kept repeating in his soothing voice that it was a dream and nothing more and that she was feeling sleepy, oh so tired and sleepy, and her eyelids were so heavy that they should, that they should, would not be able to open them until morning. And in the morning, she wake up feeling good and forgot about the night's troubles. Satya didn't feel exhausted by them, but her sleep was far from peaceful. She had dreamt of father having a loud argument. She hated seeing him angry and would do anything to stop him yelling at her. Only he wasn't shouting at her, but someone else. Something about a deal of how the others would be spared if he sacrificed the girl as agreed. That Satya should be spared and he will find another. When Satya awoke, it was back in her own bed, the last of the children to wake. She felt like it was a good day. The memories of the night before had dissipated, like so many dreams before it. Nothing eventful happened from that night onwards. For the next couple years, life continued as normal, though Abraham grew noticeably more sickly during that time. The children would hear him screaming in pain or wailing sorrowfully from his room on some nights. But when they asked him about it the next morning, he would just smile and tell them not to worry. Even he had bad dreams every now and then. A day eventually came when Abraham gathered all the children and told them that he had nothing left to teach them. It was time for them to be part of society. He would not send them out into the world alone, though. He had arranged jobs and foster families for everyone in the city. With a teary eye, he hugged each and every one of his children and gave each an envelope containing the precious few dollars that remained of his savings. He closed down, he closed down the orphanage and became a recluse 
spending the remainder of his life deep in prayer and solitude. After he died, they found only one item of value in his possession, a girl's locket with the name Vanna engraved on the back. They buried it with him. It was a couple of weeks after the funeral that Satya started noticing the boy again. She had welcomed him into her life in the past, and now he wouldn't leave. Father had tried to make her forget him, but she still remembers that boy lying in bed with her, with no eyes and no tongue, just this horrible hissing. No arms or legs, just stumps, lying there, looking at her, hissing in agony. It won't let her forget. Whenever she lies in bed, she feels it breathing on her neck, whispering evils into her ear and tormenting her thoughts, telling her that Abraham did not keep his bargain to make another sacrifice, that Abraham had cheated him through death, and that he will claim what it owed, and she will give it to him. She must sacrifice a child and feed its flesh to another so that his essence can be passed on, as it now does in her. And if she doesn't choose, he will choose for her, one of her own. As much as she tries to forget him, he won't let her. Every night, she hears him hissing beside her, and he is too afraid, and she is too afraid to open her eyes. Fucking demons! I sure hope it's not demons. That definitely sounded like a demon story. It did. There was a religious undertone there. I didn't mind it, though. Uh, yeah. I think the religious undertone was, hey, you're at a funeral. Father Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they just called him Father Abraham, but it's just like most orphanages do have a religious undertone because it's kind of treated like a little Catholic school type of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I wholeheartedly believe that the author was fucking shit-faced hammered. <laughs> Like, that story um, went into a little bit more detail than I'm most gonna, of the others. I'm going to level with you. I think that's the first story I didn't like as much. <laughs> really? Okay, okay. And I'm just, and it's just because something about, um, something about it's like non-linear storytelling just didn't read to me as well yeah. thought out as the other ones. It, it seems. Because it isn't presented in a way where you learn the thing at the end of the story and then have to think about it. Yeah. What's presented at the end of the story is why she's in the hospital to begin with because she's nuts. But the, the twist, the real twist that they, they want you to learn and be confounded by is the fact that they were eating human flesh and that's mm -hmm. that's a much more surprising twist and then the story continued for another four pages so i was just like done by that point mm -hmm. um it doesn't have the same rhythm correct it didn't have the same rhythm um i i i did like it i'll, I'll say that i liked it quite a bit but there were a few times where i thought in my head this should have ended a paragraph ago like, yeah. like, like, and stop. that's not to say it was a bad story. I'm just saying that it's not on par with the others Correct. for me personally. And I think that's the first one to kind of leave me like a little, uh, just a little like 
Yeah. Could could have been something more. It doesn't quite ever say what it means to say. You know, it doesn't quite. Mm-hmm. I feel like if all it wanted to say was our dad was nuts and made us eat a kid, like that could have been. Yeah, that could really have ended compelling. literally when it and went from. That could have been we, really we, compelling. There was an eight or however he said it, uh, something eight orphan to eight orphan. Like right. that that part where where they're like oh and that's why like yeah that's like it should have that, that should have been the period that's the it's not um it's not uh what is it or we're having the humans for dinner saying yeah. what is it to serve man that's the guy's yelling he's like to serve man it's not it's not them serving us it's them cooking us and serving us to their species you yeah, know it's, it's yeah. that twist all over again. I don't know, man. It's it's the first story to do the no sleep thing where it just over explains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's it is what it is. Yeah. Wasn't bad. Wasn't great. Moving forward. No sleep. <laughs> Reddit no sleep for the yeah, innocent. I was going to say it's um, a nice transition. No sleep for the innocent. Yeah. No, that's a hmm. it's a good ending word. You know, Sacha couldn't go to bed. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, no sleep for the innocent. eh? Hey, even yep. <laughs> um, I can tell that these will be shorter by page count because the last one was longer. Yeah, yeah. perhaps. No sleep for the innocent. Part eleven. Of the dozens of interviews Steve and I conducted, this is the third and final one that I thought would be of interest to Reddit. No sleep. It's a very simple story, but for me, also the creepiest. Nice. It hits far too close to home. The most remarkable thing about David was just how unremarkable he was. Though a very decent man by any measure, he lacked any distinguishing traits that would have stood him out from a crowd. It was this initial bias that almost made us pass over his story without digging further. Like many people, David was struggling with the world. His wife, Laura, had died from cancer four years ago, and he was juggling between making ends meet while raising his two sons on his own. His eldest, Joel, was 17 and a handful, on the verge of being an adult and with the typical rebellious streak that made many a father's life a trial, seesawing between sullen withdrawal or straight-out bursts of teenage angst, he was often as much a hindrance as a help to the household. David often feared it was just a matter of time before he'd find Joel behind bars, but it was hard to find the time to be the fatherly role he figured he wanted and needed to be. David's other son, Adam, was the opposite but in no less need of attention. Nine years of age, quiet and withdrawn, he was painfully shy and seldom spoke since Laura's death. David always felt guilty that he wasn't able to be there more for his children, but he was doing the best he knew how. Parenthood didn't come with a manual for him, and he was painfully ill-prepared for it, even after 17 years. Laura had always been the natural parent. In the past year, he had taken out a large mortgage and moved his family to a better neighborhood. Unfortunately, the financial pressure meant that he now had to work two jobs to make ends meet. His main role was a security guard from 7pm to 7am, five nights a week. It was the only job he'd known and he was good at. Burdened with his larger debts, he now his other nights stacking shelves at a local grocery store. 
He didn't enjoy it, but it was money. And there aren't many choices of jobs for when he was awake. In the mornings when he came home from work and couldn't beat the morning rush hour, he would occasionally see his kids briefly at the breakfast table. Otherwise, he would catch them in the evenings when they came back from school as he was preparing for the next shift. He was stuck in a vicious cycle of financial slavery that brought him guilt, stress, and anxiety. But we soon discovered that money wasn't the source of his problems. It had all started a year ago when David came home from a shift, only to find Adam holding back tears at the breakfast table. Joel was in his own world, head banging with his headphones plugged in, obliviously eating cereal. Concerned, David sat down next to Adam, hugged him, and asked him what was wrong, and that only made Adam burst into sobs. Hey, hey, listen, champ, chin up, it's okay, I'm here now, tell me what's wrong. Adam opened his mouth, but after several moments, failed to say a word. Hey, buddy, if you don't want to talk right now, let's chat about it when you come home from school today, okay? What, whatever's wrong, we'll fix it. David comforted Adam tenderly. He gave Adam his lunch money, walked both his sons to the door, and watched them set off for school. Exhausted, he took off his shoes and went straight to bed. That evening, when his sons returned, David wanted to continue his chat with Adam. Please, please stay at home tonight, Dad. Don't go to work, please. Why, champ? Is something wrong? Is Joel hurting you? Adam nervously shook his head. No, it's just, please stay home, Dad. Don't go to work. David laughed. I wish I didn't have to, son. I wish I could spend more time with you boys, but... There are bills piling up, and someone needs to put food on the table for you grown boys. I can't trust your brother to do that just yet. I can't even trust him to know what a can opener looks like. He mussed up Adam's hair and kissed him lightly on the forehead. Do your homework, then go to bed, son. I'll see you in the morning, okay? A few weeks later, as David was preparing dinner, Adam returned home from school with a bruise on his face. David glanced at Joel, who only rolled his eye and gave him an... I had nothing to do with it, shrugged before slouching off to his room. Hey buddy, what happened? Is someone bullying you at school? Your teacher called today. She said she was worried because you haven't been having any lunch for the past couple of weeks. Is someone taking your lunch money? Adam simply shook his head and pleaded again for his dad to stay at home. The following week, David was woken from his sleep by loud pounding at the front door. Groggily, he opened it to be confronted with inspectors from Child Protective Services. Adam's teachers had noticed more and more bruises on his body. Coupled with his lack of lunch, they were deeply concerned that David was abusing him and keeping him malnourished. David was shocked and outraged with indignation. He responded that they should be investigating the school instead for allowing his son to be bullied, assaulted, and robbed while the teachers did nothing. After several hours of intense questioning and searching every corner of the house, the agents found nothing conclusive. They left him with a warning that if they'd returned, if there was any indignation that Adam continued. They left him with a warning that they would return if there was any indication that Adam continued to be abused. It was with wariness and concern when David was again interrupted in his sleep by the phone. It was from the principal's office, and they wanted to see him immediately. Rushing to the school, he found Adam with his head bowed, sitting next to a fuming family. 
Adam was caught stealing $10 from another student, and when confronted, had lashed out and hit the other child. David apologized profusely and made Adam do the same. David wondered where he had gone wrong as a parent. When they got home, David sat Adam down and simply said, Adam, I'm very disappointed in you. I know I haven't been a good father, but I've been around for you as much as I'd like, but I try. God knows that I try to do good by you. I would have expected this kind of behavior from Joel, but not you. What's he asking you to do while I'm not around? Did he make you do this? Adam shook his head again and choked back tears. Dad, please stay home with me. Please don't go to work tonight, he pleaded. Why did you do it then? Why did you steal that boy's money? Because I, I, I didn't want you to have to go to work tonight. I want you to stay with me. Son, look, you, you, have, you know I have to work. But before David could finish his sentence, Adam jumped up and ran to his room with tears streaming down his face. He returned a few moments later, cradling a tattered shoebox in his hands, removing the lid he gave the box to David. Inside were a collection of coins and notes, several hundred dollars in loose change, every single dollar that David had given Adam to buy his lunch. See, Dad, you don't have to go to work tonight. I've been saving your money. Is this enough so you can stay home tonight? David was speechless. It was his turn to burst into tears as he pulled Adam in close for a tight hug. Of course, son, you're my boy. Of course I'll stay home tonight with you. I've been a bad father. I haven't been there enough for you. Tonight we'll do whatever you want, anything. Adam looked his father in the eyes for several moments, as if trying to find the right words to say, and finally he stuttered, Dad, I, I just want you to watch me. I want you to watch over me when I sleep. David was a bit surprised by this request. Sure, buddy. Are, are you sure? Why? It almost reminds <laughs> me of... Like, I, I had a... a, a almost similar weird-ish bonding moment with my dad when I was growing up, where I had, it was the first time I had gotten into a fight at school, uh, and I remember I was kind of, you know, in a bad place, it was kind of right, uh, like a, a year or so before I had started going to, like, therapy for bipolar and whatnot, um, and I, I was picked on a lot, so I, I had gotten into my first fight it was a Thursday, and my dad asked me, you know, kind of asked me what, what was going on, and obviously I told the people at the school, you know, hey, I've been getting bullied, yada, 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 I was lashing out, blah, 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 blah. Um, he took me that night to go see episode three of Star Wars, <laughs> which it literally was the release weekend, and we had no plans of going, and it was the first time I ever saw a Star Wars movie on opening night. Since that day, I have seen every Star Wars movie on opening night. That's awesome. So that was kind of like a weird, like, he doesn't realize how how deeply that hit me. And he was simply like, you know, I'm proud of you for sticking up for yourself. Yeah. You know. Just well, a gesture. Yeah. That's nice. You know, like a weird, like, hey, we, we don't want to be bonding over this, but we are anyway. Yeah. Type of situation. 
Uh, the closest thing I have in comparison to that with my dad, my dad's a troll. I talk about him <laughs> all the time. If I were to walk into my dad and say, hey, uh, the, the sky is blue and the grass is green, he'd be like, fuck you. What are you talking about? The grass is blue, the sky is green, you fucking nerd. <laughs> and and he would just disagree with me off principle. So my dad is a troll. The The closest he's ever come to, to legit... Uh, giving me, like, kudos in any way, is when he found out I had been secretly taking women home back to his house <laughs> and having them sleep over with me. Instead of yelling at me, he's just like, he wryly smiled and said, you know, just let me know if you're gonna have someone over. <laughs> Whereas my mom would be like, get out, you're not living here anymore! Oh, I can't say my name on the show. <laughs> she would say my full name. She'd be like, get out of this house. My dad, my dad, he says, hey, just let me know when you're going to plow some gas. Yeah. I want to live vicariously through you. I don't got to see it. I just got to Let me see these girls before you bring them in. <laughs> just so I can see. Just so I can see what they look like, you know? See what they're wearing. But yeah, Get the proportions no, I, right. I like, I like this story a lot. And I, I can't wait to see what type of thing is doing this to his kid at night. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, God, I just read the next line. <laughs> Adam stared at his feet for a few more moments, almost too embarrassed by the reason. Almost imperceptibly, he whispered, so the skeleton man in the ceiling won't attack me. <laughs> yep. Oh my god, if there's an attic in this kid's room, I'm gonna be so fucking upset. Yeah. <laughs> David Cole didn't sick that night, <laughs> is the immediate next line, and watched his son as he slept. It was an exceedingly odd request and completely frightening. But then again, what nine-year-old doesn't have an overactive imagination about the dark? David didn't find it an unpleasant task, though. He hadn't watched Adam asleep since he was a few months old. He'd forgotten how much he missed it. It brought back an unbidden whirl of memories. The first night, Laura and Adam came back from the hospital. The lullabies David would sing to make Adam sleep. How he watched Laura tuck the boys in every night. Adam and Joel had both grown up so quickly, and he spent so much of his life away from them that it seemed he woke up one morning only to find strangers at the breakfast table. He missed Laura terribly and wished she was here to watch their boys grow. He missed the way she made smiley face with the eggs and bacon in the morning for the kids. He just made fucking frowns. He was upset. Fuck you, kids. He missed coming home to her warmth that made it feel like a home. He definitely missed how her lips tasted of coffee when he kissed them when he returned from his night shift. But more than anything, he missed talking to her. He needed her to tell him that he was doing a fine job, that she would be proud of what their sons would grow up to be, that she would be proud of the sacrifices he was making so their kids could have a better life. He knew he needed to be there more for his sons. That night soon faded as the first glimmers of sunlight streamed through the window. Adam slowly woke to see David still watching over him, smiling, eyes moist with tears. Good morning, champ, David beamed. Good morning, Dad, Adam rubbed his eyes. Is everything okay? 
Everything's great, son. Did you sleep well? Yeah, Adam yawned. Did anything happen last night? No, I watched you all night. You slept like a, a baby. David smiled again. You're a good night watchman, Dad, Adam joked. Yeah, I'm the best, buddy. But it's also because there's no such things as monsters under your bed. Or skeletons in your ceiling. Yes. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I gotta, I gotta <clears throat> channel my, like, inner Voldemort. Yeah. Yes. You're right. A voice hissed. David's heart skipped a beat as he watched Adam gasp, staring at something behind his head. David could hear a scraping sound above him like bones scuttling against wood. He quickly turned around in time to see the remains of a dark figure darting from the ceiling out the door and a fading voice whispering, David still chooses to work the night shift. It's the only way he could be sure if he's awake for if and when it returns. So many questions. So now David doesn't sleep anymore? Well, David didn't sleep before. Good point. You know. No sleep for the innocent. Yeah. Um. Interesting story. Didn't didn't Gurgles say see you again soon in his story? I believe he did, now that you mention it. Was, I hadn't put that together before you mentioned I it. I mean, he says bones scuttling rapidly against wood. I don't assume it was Gurgles and Bugman, because they kill their kids. Yeah. They don't just, like, fucking them give, them, and... give them Indian burns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Try going to sleep with this, you fucker. This <laughs> is fucking... Ow, 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 shit. It's gonna leave a mark. What if Bugman's dead, which is why there's only one? Bugman's Bugman's dead and Gurgles just run around yeah, on the ceiling. Gur Gurgles has no reason Gurgles to Gurgles is wearing Bugman's skin so he could, <laughs> so he could fit on ceilings That's now. why he looks like a skeleton, because the, the exoskeleton... <laughs> He looks like bones, but it's actually bugs. He looks like a fucking xenomorph <laughs> climbing around uh, with the terrifier's head. Um, it was interesting. It was an interesting story. Um, I think that it also I just kind of ended. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of what I what I uh, I'm I'm happiest about. Um, I do consider the the crossover of the catchphrase. To be a connection between the two stories, so that that hits a check mark on my box. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if if that was intentional or not. The way that the so for those who can't physically look at it, there are it's it's thrown out with multiple letters in yes. the same fashion as it was the last S -S 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 -E 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 -E. time. S S S S S E E E E E. Yeah. Why are you a G Soon. Yeah. S S S S O O O O N N N. Yeah, it's like it's very specific. Um it is also a creepy pasta thing. I like 
That happens in, in so fair. many creepy pastas. The whole see you again soon type of, you know. It's a spooky thing. Kind of the I'll be back. It's very like Candyman, mm. you know, like I'll see you. See you when I see you. Anyway, this next one, part 12, is called Guardian. It's been a while since I've written, but my great grandmother, Cassandra, recently passed away. She was an ordinary person, but also extraordinary in many ways. She had a story to tell, and I felt like this audience would appreciate it. Cassandra lived to the remarkable age of 106 years old. She had witnessed the greatest period of change in human history, even for her, going from horse and buggies to landing robots on Mars seemed like the blink of an eye. Two world wars, several global pandemics, and countless stock market crashes had not killed her. Small reminder that we will get out of this together. We will get through this together. Um, sm smoke if you got <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's as if, in defiance, she smoked like a chimney. <laughs> smoke if you got him, <laughs> yeah. Sandra. Drank like a sailor, yeah. ate like a glutton, and did all those things that were supposed to be bad and send you to an early grave. <laughs> Even at her age. I'm going to die at 42. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope. <laughs> Even at her age, she was very spry and independent. She didn't suffer fools gladly. She had lived too long to care what others thought of her and was antisocial at the best of times uh, and mostly liked to keep to herself. But when she loved you, she loved you with all her heart. I was one of those fortunate few. She had lived in the same small, cozy home all her life, a home that she had shared with, with great-grandpa Peter, who had passed away 30 years ago. The house was adorned with all manner of religious artifacts she had collected across the span of several continents and several decades. Those who knew her called her Cassie the Blessed, or Cassie the Cursed, behind her back, depending on their perspectives. For in her life, luck and fate seemed constantly battling around her. A large part of her longevity was her uncanny ability to avoid being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Perhaps the most memorable example was the holiday she had about 45 years ago. For years they had saved every penny and worked tirelessly to travel all around the UK. Grandpa Peter had spent several months managing every meticulous detail, a lifetime habit shaped from being an accountant. Halfway through their trip, they were scheduled to fly from London via Dublin. Arriving at the airport in good spirits, Cassie stopped short on the, the airline carrier and suggested to Peter they should stay another day. Grandpa wasn't happy about that at all. It would screw up the plans he made, and the penalties would blow their budget. He only relented when Grandma burst into tears, pleading him and making a scene in public. I think in the last episode you mentioned precognition yeah. through um, Final Destination. Mm -hmm. I can only assume yeah. that gran yeah, uh, yeah. Grandma uh, Cassandra 
had something of that some of that sensitivity yeah sixth sense uh she really did not want to fly that day which is literally the plot of the first final destination movie she was angry he was angry with her for the rest of the day his attitude did indeed change when the following morning the paper reported that flight 712 had crashed that day with 61 people on board there were no survivors to this day the cause of the crash remains a mystery another incident was her first visit to new york in 1945 she and grandpa were looking forward to the view from the top of the empire state building they were in the magnificent art deco foyer waiting for the elevator to the observation deck when it arrived and was opened by the attendant Grandma gasped. She turned to Grandpa and said that she needed some air and they should head out. Outside, discussing how the foggy weather made it a bad day for a view anyway, they heard a loud explosion from above. A plane had crashed into the Empire State Building, sending the elevator crashing down 75 floors. 14 people died in the upper levels from the accident. Throughout her life, there were many more such occurrences. A building fire in France in 1953, a fatal bus accident in Kentucky in 1958, a mass shooting in California in 1984, a shipping cruise in Malaysia in 1992. Each and every time, she would narrowly avoid stepping into tragedy, only for death and destruction to follow for others in her wake. People believed she had a guardian angel looking out for her. She was Cassie the Blessed, and she was Cassie the Cursed. My friend Steve jokingly called her Schrodinger's Grandma. He has a semi-serious theory that Cassie was a localized quantum probability wave function singularity. Someone that sucked up all the good luck around her. Uh, nature would have to compensate by pushing bad luck to everyone else, filling in the void and restoring equilibrium. The last time I saw Grandma Cassie was just a few weeks ago. Our birthdays were just a few days apart. To save her from traveling across town, we opted for a joint party at her home. Grandma never did like birthday parties, but she baked a chocolate cake with chantilly cream and cherries. As I blew out the candles and made my birthday wish, I joked that all I wanted was her secret to long life. She looked at me with sad, serious eyes while everyone else laughed. Later, she took me aside and said that if that, if that was truly my wish, then she would tell me. But only after the party was finished and we were alone. The, rem the remnants of the party cleaned up, and the, last, and the last guests had finally left. I helped Grandma up to her room. Her two Rottweilers, Roger and Hammerstein, followed and took their usual sleeping spots by the foot of her bed. Once she was tucked in and comfortable, I sat by the bedside as she told me a story. I believe Roger and Hammerstein are uh, composers for Broadway musicals. And uh, okay. that's when I have to admit that I, uh, everyone on the podcast, uh, I'm gay. 
<laughs> you may continue. It was long ago, one summer's <laughs> night, when she was asleep in that very bed. She had awoken by the sounds of heavy footsteps on the pavement outside, followed by the steady thunks of a shovel constantly hitting dirt. Curious, she was gathering her nightgown and stepped towards the window. She peeked out through her curtains. In the yard was a tall man in tattered clothing, digging up her lawn. He was methodical and precise in his movements, each stroke strong, confident, purposeful. She watched each stroke, hypnotically, too afraid to even breathe. After what seemed like a lifetime, he stopped digging and walked out of view. Grandma crammed her neck to try and find him as she drew the curtains back to view, to view her, to change her view. She suddenly appeared two feet from outside her window, facing her carrying a coffin on his back. Grandma screamed loudly. The stranger barely reacted except to look up and lock eyes with her and smile. She saw an impossibly wide grin, razor-sharp teeth glinting in the moonlight. Long black hair framed his long, thin face. Deep yellow eyes that were rotting leered at her. Hearing the scream, her father rushed into the room. He found her on the floor by the window where she had fainted. In the morning, she investigated the lawn and found it intact. She had her father dig a hole where she had seen the stranger dig, but they uncovered nothing but dirt, stone, and earthworms. It was a bad dream and nothing more. She never spoke of it again to anyone, and she had Rottweiler sleeping with her ever since. In time, she had forgotten all about the stranger. She got married, she had children, she became the loving housewife. Until one day in New Mexico, April 1930, she was waiting for a greyhound stop for the bus. He was there, standing at the back, watching her, grinning, licking his sharp teeth, monitoring with his thin fingers for her to come closer. She froze and looked around. No one else seemed to notice him or react. Feeling vulnerable and unsure if she was going crazy, she stood as far away from possible as possible, desperately counting down the hours for the bus tour would arrive. When it finally did, she never did get on. The stranger had boarded it first. He sat down by the window, watching her, never letting her out of his sight, always grinning with those menacing teeth. She watched as the doors closed and the bus pulled away, and she saw the stranger laugh, then sink those teeth into the passenger beside her. Yeah, Grandma, this is a really great story, but, like, are you telling me I'm gonna have, like, some type of toothy rapist following me the rest of my life? This is not... I don't want that. <laughs> uh, what's the title of it? Um, you can't unlook at something? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Oh, uh, a curious mind is a terrible curse. Yeah! You can't unlook at something. <laughs> you can't unlook at something. Once you see it, you can't unlook at it. Tooth man's always there. Um, so drunk. <laughs> that bus was later found stopped 
at a rail crossing nine miles south of Albuquerque. It was hit by the weekend <laughs> The westbound Santa Fe mail train number seven. Killing 21 people. Shit. Most of the victims were burned beyond recognition from the explosion. I assume it's just a visage of death. Yeah. You know, like, it's like she's, she's it's having the, a really spooky premonition. Wherever yeah. this guy is, she just die. doesn't go. Yeah, yeah, she just doesn't. Answer. Thanks. Yeah, cool. <laughs> See ya. Read it loud and clear. <laughs> Big pointy I'm teeth. Good. Licking no, lips. Thank you. See you later. <laughs> Opens the elevator. Come on, get in the elevator. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'll take the next one. <laughs> Plane crashes into the building. Never gets the next one. Throughout the years, she found that the stranger was always around waiting for her. In the elevator at the Empire State Building, at the airport in Dublin, in a taxi, a restaurant in California, boarding a cruise boat in Asia. Each time, he would be beckoning and she would run away. It is, it is creepy. It, it, it is, it is the creepiest thing we've read oh, yeah. <laughs> probably since Kerbos and Buckman. She was Cassie the Blessed, people would think. She must have a guardian angel. <laughs> she was Cassie the Cursed, she knew, because the stranger was always waiting for her. And until she relented, he kept extracting payment from those around her. Grandma was sobbing at this point. I kissed her forehead and squeezed her hand gently. She looked up, blinked, and smiled. You're a good boy. She closed her eyes. And I think it's time for you to go home. Please drive safely. She's totally seeing him right now. She Getting reopened closer. her... Oh, yeah. Uh, she reopened her eyes, her gaze fixed into the distance, along with her receding memories. I'm so tired. So very tired. She sighed. It's time now. Time for my rest. Time to go. I tucked her in, turned off the lights, and told her I'd see her again soon. Bullshit. Bearing a near miss by a drunk driver running a red light, I did manage to get home safely that night. I never did get to see Grandma Cassie again. When I dropped by the following week, she was dead. She was found with a crucifix clutched in her hands, her neck snapped, her torso and flesh from her tights ripped open. Thighs. Thighs ripped open from a large bite wound. Jesus Christ. The police report concluded that she slipped and died when, when her neck broke. Her dog, starving from not being fed, started consuming the soft parts of her body. They do that, though. As for myself, I'm not so sure. It's been a few weeks. The shock is fading, but some details still haunt me. Writing this story down helps clear my mind. It helps to think that it's my duty to tell her story, as I was the only person to hear the last words she ever spoke. And to stop thinking that maybe that fateful night in her room we weren't alone and that those last words she uttered were not meant for me yeah I had that same thought I I got to the point where you know as when you read you kind of visualize things in your head like a movie yeah yeah in, in my head this is kind of like an it follows you know 
everywhere this young girl goes as her life progresses, there's just this visage. And, uh, you know, it's it for me, it was almost like Fred from Cursed Cowardly Dog, just an yeah. inhuman smile plastered on a person's face. And, you know, she knows whenever she sees someone smiling like that, that she shouldn't go near it. But what, and I started to think this like halfway through the story, but what happens once she's old and she just sees this guy walking at her from a distance, you know, like getting closer every day, like she'll get in a car, you know, she'll move to another country. She'll do whatever she can. But what happens when he's in the passenger and how long has she been running from this guy to stay 106 years old? You know, like it, it begs to question, was she just done running at this point in her life? Was she too old to continue running or was this just her, her time to go, you know? And, and the visualization of the time it took to get there is, is horrifying. Mm -hmm. If, if I had to live my entire life taunted by death, you could count me right the fuck out. See ya. Yeah. I'm looking at death over there and I'm saying, fuck you, as I put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger. It's like, I see you over there. Guess what? Death right here in my hand. You can't out-stubborn me, fucker. And then I kill myself. Or it, like, does, it misfires six times and I go, fuck you, and I I run. And I run. (laughs) It misfires all six times and I'm like, God, fuck. Anyway. It's a fun story. Yeah. It's a very fun story. Uh, I liked that one a lot. He still got it. After a couple of uh, stories, he still got it. That's a good one. All right. Last one. Part 13. The worst thing about growing old. Wasn't that the last one? Yeah. <laughs> he keeps carrying over. He keeps carrying over titles that almost compare to the last story. That's his, that's his yeah, crossover. It makes a really nice transition. The worst thing about growing old... Most of us will one day face a moment when we realize our best days are far behind us. I've realized that, and I'm 28. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, what was that? Six years ago? (laughs) Yeah, probably when I was like 25. That moment may stock up gradually when one day we'll blink and our hands have become old, our bodies pained and feeble, our souls weary, and our minds forgetful. (laughs) I'm all of those things at 28. I always think of my my peak was when I smoked weed in front of a sheriff and got away with it. That was my peak. Oh. That was that was the tip. It, like it was like, yep, can't do anything that stupid anymore. I gotta cut it back. <laughs> you know? It's a masterpiece. One day, a stranger will be reflected back when we gaze into the mirror. The person we were, beautiful, healthy, brilliant. Fat. will have faded sober forever (laughs) from the earth lost for all eternity never to be found again gone too will be the people so loved and nurtured and cherished over a lifetime down their own distant paths travel it becomes a prison built of failing flesh and mind filled with a lifetime of regrets of things left undone thanks for harshing my fucking mellow (laughs) and making me real fucking anxiously existential in one paragraph. Oh yeah. My, my Mr. Fucking... Writer. You looked my... you looked off into the distance longingly and I just got more depressed as I read. My my whole like self-worth just like dropped <laughs> out of my body. I was like, yeah. I found myself thinking, what am 
I doing here, sitting on this couch? Will, will, will my friend, will, where am I, who I haven't even introduced at this point? Will, where am I, remember me in a year? <laughs> all, all I'm what saying What happens is- if I die tomorrow? Will, where am I, get my computer from my brother and edit this episode to post it two weeks from now? Probably not! <laughs> to, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's like a, I might get your laptop, save it somewhere, never touch it again, and like, I'll have it on the, the the flash drive that I have all of the music that I made with Tom Bongbadil. <laughs> where like beautiful. One day six years from now I find it go, oh man, that was great and then put it away for another like ten year spout without. Now I don't necessarily and I do need to to, to construct my will. <laughs> or at least I now need to reconstruct my will. I need I need someone not only to carry my legacy, but the minute I die, let everyone on the show know who I was in life so that I could just blow all this shit up. Yeah. It's like, um, oh, hey, everyone, by the way, if you miss this fucker, there's like 400 hours of him talking online. <laughs> Listen to all of it. <laughs> he talks so much shit on all of you. I will say if you put in your will that you wanted me to edit it and publish it, <laughs> then I would do it. Yeah. I'd be like, fuck, I gotta figure out how to edit this shit. Uh, we're doing it live, click. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, if I, if I, if I'm not gonna have you be the one who does it. That's fair. I'm gonna inconvenience someone else <laughs> a lot more. That's fair. Anyway. Good times. Thanks for making me fucking bummed, <laughs> writer of this story. And with that, yeah, fuck. We drink. Shit, I wish I had fucking alcohol. Growing old was a natural topic of discussion after great-grandma Cassandra's funeral. Many of us will become a burden for our families and find ourselves in a nursing home to wither away our final days. Not me. (laughs) Not me, dear audience. I'm going to take myself out right when I know the perfect time. Yeah. The minute my legs stop working, the minute my dick stops working. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I'm out of here. Been a good run. Catch the ride on hail bop. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) At the wake. (laughs) I am thoroughly convinced that at some point I will like win the lottery or do like something, (laughs) something crazy is going to happen. I'm going to have $10,000 and more than half of it's going to be cocaine and I'm not going to last the weekend. (laughs) You're not going to make it. Like it's just, I'm going to be be 46 and you're going to be like, yeah, it's self-induced heart attack. He like, you know. (laughs) He, he just, fucking... He just did everything, man. Yeah. So you want to see his toxi- toxicology report? Do you want to? And they just pull out, like, a spiral-bound notebook. <laughs> this, is, this is what he was on. All of it. All of it. <laughs> yeah. The last recording we have is from five days ago. He was at the casino. He gave and a lot of bells and minutes. whistles. And... He gave himself 20 minutes in between ingesting all of these. <laughs> He would start one and be like, mm, don't feel it yet, and just try the next one in 20 minutes. Oh, by the time you got to fucking DM- Eight or nine. By the time you got to DMT, he just started chewing all of it like Chex Mix. Fucking, oh, oh, this fucking, one's long. Oh, this this one's a needle. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Smarties, just pick them up, throw them back. Throw them back. At the wake, my uncle shared some stories from another relative who was working in a nursing home from many years ago. It had undergone many name changes over the years, but started reputably enough as the Sunset Eden with a caring and dedicated nursing staff. 
An orderly is often an underappreciated job, being neither pleasant nor easy. Not because of having to clean up after elderly bodies, that's the easy part, it's more the psychological toll. The elderly residents are there simply because they have no problem. Simply because they have problems their families can no longer deal with, nor want to. Their medical complications, their fractured minds with unpredictable personalities and moods, their constant demands are now all your responsibility. Multiplied several times over with multiple patients, and even the most caring nursing staff would be tempted to keep their patients sedated just to get through the day. Over time, as the Sunset Eden grew larger and the management changed, so too did its priorities. Profits became the focus over the residents. Overworked nursing staff found themselves stretched thinner, looking after more residents in the name of efficiency. Combined with budget cuts, the quality of the people hired deteriorated with the wages offered. The worst of these new staff would use their positions of power to abuse, mistreat, and steal from the vulnerable residents, not unlike the card from the infamous Stanford Prison Experiment. Patience and sympathy were replaced with punishment and fear as the main tools for compliance, and no tool was more effective at the Sunset Eden than an infamous room with a sinister reputation. Officially called Ward 306, it was known as the Suicide Room by staff and residents due to its unusual history. A small ward with space for two beds and its own ensuite, it was part of a hospital building converted in 1932. For the first few years, nothing distinguished it from any other rooms. That changed in 1936. The elderly Mr. Finley, the room's only resident at the time, was found hanging from the ceiling one morning. A crude makeshift rope made from an assortment of ties had snapped and broken his neck. After a thorough police investigation, no motive nor suspicion activity was no motive nor suspicious activity was ever found, so the case officially closed off as a suicide. Death is not an unusual occurrence in a nursing home, but over a quick span of the next eight years, five more deaths would occur in that room, all ruled as suicides. One resident had drowned in the bathtub. Another had consumed a box of rat poison. The third and fourth had simultaneously placed pistols in their mouths and splattered the walls with their brains. The fifth was the most unusual, and the only one to leave a note. He had stabbed deeply into his own eye with a kitchen knife after mutilating his body with a straight razor. Fuck. Above his body, on the wall, was a message written in his own blood in jaggedly scrawled capital letters with a gruesome 3 by 3 grid were the cryptic words Tempus Edix Rerum Erum Quad S Eris Quad Sum From there the legend of Ward 306 grew. The management would make numerous attempts to repaint the walls or cover them with paper, but stains would always gradually seep back through, marking them with splashes of blood or ghostly faces. Can you go back to that? I want you to want to translate it? it? Tempus edax rerum. <laughs> of course, the only time I pick up my phone the entire fucking night it rings. Aram quadus. Eris Quatsu. 
It keeps auto-correcting the shit. Yeah. Because it's like, this is in English, and I'm like, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Latin. Uh, is a Latin phrase that is often found on gravestones and translates as, I was what you are, you will be what I am. Yeah. Okay. I was human once, but I died. Yeah. You're gonna do the same. Fair enough, old guy. Mr. Fenlay. The management would make numerous attempts to repaint the walls or cover them with paper, but stains would always gradually seep back through, marking them with splashes of blood or ghostly faces. The faint stench of something foul and putrid began to linger, cutting through even perfume used to mask it. The air in the room took on a constant chill dampness no matter the weather outside. Occupants complained of strange sounds heard at night, mournful wailing, soft sobs that echoed around the walls, particularly from the bathroom, and refused to stay in it. Over the years, the room would be inspected many times by different engineers to explain the causes. They concluded the wall stains were most likely the accumulated leaks from rusted pipes running through the inner walls, the putrid smell from broken sewage drains under the bathroom, the room acoustic signature amplifying vibrations from an outside air conditioning unit to create strange noises, and its condenser increased the humidity in the room. Combined with the room's aspect that kept it away from direct sunlight, the temperature would be constantly cooler than outside. Despite these assurances, residents and staff still avoided the suicide room. <laughs> with a name like that, I can't imagine why. Even a luxurious renovation could not convince any residents to move in. For a profit-minded administration, it was too valuable a space to left unused. In 1971, they had what seemed to be a clever idea. Ward 306 would be used as an unofficial punishment room. That's weird. When elderly residents weren't being cooperative enough, they were threatened with being placed in the suicide room. A euphemistically called Spending the Night with Sue. It's like a, it's like a TV show. Yeah. Spending the night with Sue. Haha, <laughs> I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> Come into my room. Spend Hopefully the night. animated. <laughs> with that fucking intro. <laughs> Knowing the history, the longer-term residents immediately, if reluctantly, became more pa- uh, became more pliant. Newer residents would be more defiant, however, until they had their first night with Sue. The stories of their experiences later would only further fuel the room's reputation, such as that of a certain Mr. Fisher. It had become a standard procedure for a night watchman to patrol the wards throughout the night to check on residents. They would shine their flashlight through the square windows cut into each door. Mr. Fisher had dared to accuse an orderly of stealing his watch and was locked in 306 as a punishment. During one round, as he watched the bright flashlight beam light up through the window then move on, he was startled to find a figure standing quietly in the room by the door. It was a young girl, thin, deathly pale and unmoving. She stood facing the bed and staring at him through her empty eye sockets. Frozen in fear and unable to scream, he cowered under his sheets like a frightened child, staring back at the girl and waiting for her to move. It was not until the footsteps of the guard returning could be heard that the girl shifted. She turned 
towards the bathroom and silently glided towards it, eventually disappearing from view. Mr. Fisher stayed awake, staring at the ensuite, but the girl did not return. He eventually tired and succumbed to sleep. Waking in the morning, he saw a trail of water in shape of footprints coming from the bathroom, leading all the way up to right next to his bed, and his bed sheets were soaked. Other residents told of tapping noises, like hard claws against the tiles from under the bed. They would feel their blankets slowly being dragged from below. Uh, you know, I, I, before we continue more, I just want to say my, like, one, my one response to, like, a chick, like, I'm old as fuck. I'm in this nursing sure. home. Yeah. There's there's some shadowy dame mm -hmm. over near the door. I take my fucking dick out. <laughs> I take my fucking dick out and I start beating my fucking meat there and then. Yeah. I haven't had an erection in 20 years. Let's make this happen. You're here. Let's. let's yeah. You're here. You're, you're wet. Let's go. One of these. One of two things is gonna happen. You're either gonna join in or you're gonna leave, and both of those are good. Or I'm gonna die, and like I welcome yeah, that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I welcome done. My, I'll welcome my. I'll take that. Best way to die: <laughs> my dick in my hand. <laughs> I've never met a woman who spirit is that better. Do you like? Yeah, call me a spirit. Okay, a spirit whose hands uh, just just continue to stay moist. <laughs> so let me tell you, you. Hand jobs from they're, you they're are the great. best. They're golden. My night with Sue was wonderful. <laughs> Your hand is better than a vagina. And that was the episode of <laughs> Night with Sue written by Dan Harmon. I was going to say written by Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, I don't know. Anyway. Tapping noises under the bed, blah blah. It would start, oh, the, the blanket slowly being dragged from below. It would start as a gentle pull, like a heavy blanket slowly falling from under its own weight. If they attempted to pull it back up, the tugging would suddenly become stronger and more violent. The staff would open the doors in the morning to find these residents cowered and huddled in their beds, with their blankets cocooned and shredded underneath them on the floor. But of all the stories, the most chilling was that of Mrs. Wainwright, she was strong-willed and had lived in the Sunset Eden for many years. She grew concerned over the treatment many of the residents were suffering and was accused of inciting disorder when she started to strongly voice her opinions. To serve as a warning to the others, she was confined to 306 for two whole days. She was dragged, screaming and shouting to the room by two orderlies. At the door, she pushed with her arms and feet against the frames spitting at the orderlies in her desperate struggles. It was a futile effort. <coughs> and the moment they pried her arms away and carried her through, it was all... It was as if all the fight had drained from her body. She was suddenly quiet and cooperative, just smirking and nodding while they tucked her into bed. As they locked the door, Miss Wainwright was still smirking and nodding at them through the glass. That night, the guard doing the rounds that night would find her in the beam of his flashlight still laying in bed, smirking and nodding towards the door. On his next round, she would be sitting perfectly still by the side of the bed, facing the door with the same expression. When told to go to sleep, she simply nodded, but otherwise stayed where she was. 
the following day, she didn't touch any of the food that was brought into her. She just followed the orderlies around with her eyes as they went about their duties in the room. If they got too close to her, however, she would hiss and scream and bite. Miss Wainwright was starting to creep all the staff out, especially on the second night when the patrolman reported shining his flashlight through the door only to see her face right next to the glass, smirking and nodding. When it was time for her to be released the next day, the orderlies found her sitting on the bed with her back to the door, cockroaches crawling out of her open mouth. She was dead. Rigor mortis had already set and started to fade, and autopsy revealed that she had died two days earlier from a cardiogenic shock. Jesus Christ. Heart attack. Likely brought on by the stress and exertions and her struggles to being brought to the room. The family of Miss Wainwright were appalled and livid by the news of her death. They sued the Sunset Eden, but eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed amount and agreement to never speak of the incident. No resident was ever placed again in Ward 306 after Mrs. Wainwright. The Sunset Eden would go bankrupt a few years later and be demolished to make way for new office blocks. Even buildings will face their end. Any resident of the Sunset Eden can tell you it's a torment to grow old, to lose all that you value, your health, your memories, your independence, your freedom, your dignity, your friends, your family. But they would also tell you that it's not the worst thing about growing old. It's knowing there exists forces dark and sinister lurking beyond and waiting patiently. And that death may not mark the end of your torment, but merely the beginning. Tempus edex rerum, erum quad s, eris quad sum. Time devours all. I was what you are. You'll be what I am. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I like that one quite a bit. That was probably the, my favorite um, of the night. The idea that she died upon entering that room from heart attack with something like possessed yeah. her body. It the 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 spirit was like yep, any of the that's, any of the angry spirits. Yeah, in that, that room. one's my body now. Yeah, this is my window. And until the body started to visibly show signs of death, it, mm. it had a whole two days to chill. Oh, yeah. Which is not what most uh, dead things get to do. So yeah. I assume it was having a good time. It was mm-hmm. just like nodding and said, it was hearing like a. And, he, and she's just nodding her head. No. <laughs> I don't know what to say, say it anyway. <laughs> Today is not my day <laughs> It's like face up to the glass. Say it away. I'll be coming yeah. for your love, okay? Take on me. Take the guards on outside. Me. Take on me. Take me. Thank you for committing to that with me. 
Uh, I'll tell you right now, Django would not have committed. Yeah. <laughs> he would have given up on the second lyric. Oh, this this has been a this has been a fun a fun little series. Um, I'm under the assumption that I, I think he's just gonna tell eighteen stories and be like, that's it. <laughs> I'm yeah. starting to give in more and more to like this guy really is just collecting a personal experience until he's mm-hmm. no longer well, interested. You know, he'll be like, and that's enough. <laughs> there was one where he started and he was like. I haven't written in a while or something like that. Like that was that lines. one. Um, that was that one. Okay. Uh, I think so. I thought it was the one right before that one. His Oh, it was the, the one about his grandmother. Cassie, it was yeah. Cassie. Yeah. yeah. It sort of gave me, put me under the opinion of like, well, here's where the random stories end and it's going to start like... Easing back into his yeah, personal Here's life. Here's why uh, these should be public instead of private. Well, of... it definitely shows a passage of time. Yeah. Um, it definitely shows that his interest is still with the supernatural and with weird exper- ooh, experiences. You know, the story with Cassandra is very personal to him. Mm-hmm. Um, this last one about the nursing home is just because I imagine he he was still interested in, you know, the whole yeah. elderly and death thing. Kind of brought the. He found himself in a very existential spot. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It was a really, really crazy good episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't introduce you at the beginning because motherfuckers, motherfuckers know who I'm sitting here yeah. reading with when I said we were starting a series, and luckily I'm able to get him back here soon. So we've been doing this every other episode instead of every three, which is definitely going to make this series sound better. Do you want to just um, start now? <laughs> just start the next one. <laughs> we'll just, so we're going to finish hit, it. Hit stop and record. <laughs> you ready, fuckers? Five hour episode. Here we come. Longest episode. Lots of pasta. 99, pa- 99 pages. Um, yeah. Uh, honestly, like the longest episode we've had is like three, three some hours. Okay. Three and a half hours, maybe. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'd be, I would be snoring. <laughs> by the end at this point I mean like... we we always read uh, two hours worth alone oh, so yeah. you know we, we yeah. definitely do enough per episode but this one was fun and I'm excited to see what, what stories they have next I've been sitting here like I said at the beginning just kind of itching to read the next part and I and I always mm. stop myself because let me tell you the one time I skipped ahead in the story was when I was reading uh, Whistlers with Tenron and I don't even think he knows this I might not have even talked about it on the episode but everyone I want you to know I read all of Whistlers because I couldn't fucking wait for Tenron and I I just read it all the night before we jumped into it and the interesting thing about it was that knowing how it ended did not change my, like, experience with the story. When we got to it and we went through it together, I was still left with the same questions, and reading it again did not fill in the cracks of detail that I felt like I was missing. It just made the questions persist more, which made me love that story more. I You can't... You can't really tell me what happened at the end of that story even in the bill segment when he like describes his perspective even then it's like what a black dog of some kind i don't know it's just anyway this story i feel like 
it it is so mysterious and so much of what makes this story work yeah. is the anticipation <clears throat> and the build up to each chapter so i can't read ahead in this i'd ruin mm. everything for myself i can't do that but what i do love experiencing is sitting here on this couch and just getting through it with you and just chewing each of these stories and digesting them and just kind of talking about them because this is the first time in a while that we found something hefty that does nothing but ask questions mm -hmm. And it's not well, the type of questions from your last series either. The last series we were playing like Lost. Yeah, you know we were trying like, to we were trying to be like, sure what what's the relationship between the pilot and the Terry O'Quinn? Like we you know yeah. we we were sitting when there with is the, this? the Pepe is this? Sylvia with the board and all the yarn drawn strung between pieces. Like yeah. we're not doing this this time because it's not that type of narrative we're not trying to piece together a picture we're we're on a journey together with this author mm -hmm. and he's telling us these experiences and nothing can really give you forward notion into what's going to come next yeah it reads like 18 diary posts right you know written from a singular narrative of mm -hmm. an author who is very loosely connected. Yes. And for the most part, I, I'm, I'm coming to terms and I'm not sure if it's because I don't want to be disappointed because I like this series so much mm -hmm. or if it's just because I really, I really don't care. But if this doesn't have a wraparound narrative, so be it. I just think yeah. having, I just think having a twist ending would solidify this series as being super interesting. It's the difference between good and great. Right. You know, right. At this point, I'm very, very happy with good. Right. Um, I am going to... The only to... way it becomes less than good is if it ends with, like, and I'm the Angel Gabriel, and I'm in a war with demons, and this has been my story about yeah. how, <laughs> how I've been giving favor and fighting this war against the demons. I will say, if this has a disappointing ending, <laughs> it will be more disappointing than... Than the other one? Oh, by a long shot. Which is why I don't think it's gonna... Yeah, like, this has been... the only way this is disappointing is if the next five stories suck yeah. <laughs> like, and it has to be all five of them like it's it can't right. be like if there's one out good pieces here and there because this time i'd say maybe only two or three of them were really all that interesting to yeah. me and i and, think i liked more than you did this time around i'm not that critical i definitely no, enjoyed all of them but i would say like two of them stood out the most yeah um you know uh smiley smiley man and and creepy uh creepy hospice you know i think the the old folks home hit me really differently um my grandfather was the cfo of a nursing home community from the age of approximately 65 until 82 when he passed which was a couple years ago um my grandmother still lives there the first job i ever had was in a nursing home community I've worked there at multiple points from kitchen to landscaping to, you know, just odd summer jobs because it was so tight knit with our family. Like, you know, my, they, they named an entire fucking hall after my grandfather. Um, so it just, I, I can visualize rooms as I was reading that story. 
going, uh, like, I know what these rooms look like. I know what these hallways look like. That's I know up. what these elevators look yeah, like. Like, that hit me so deep. Right. That's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucked. But it's also something that is surrounded with death. I'm very used to, like, thinking about those hallways and thinking right. about death. I I actually once thought that I wouldn't mind working in a hospice. That, like, if I were to go into, like, any type of medical, like, profession at all, it would be someone who... Almost, I would almost be someone who takes care of dead bodies or, yeah, you know, something along those lines. I can't do blood, so shit is fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, um, I don't, I don't know if I would be able to be the, um, the person who, like, empties the bodies out after they're dead. Oh, yeah, no, I couldn't. Cleans, cleans out the, the mortician, empty, empty no sockets, all that shit. No, thanks. No, thank you. <laughs> that um, that shouldn't be a profession. <laughs> there are some things in life uh, that I that I think you know, just take all the bodies and burn them. That's <laughs> just it's just the way we that that we should return to the to the earth. That have we you once ever came seen from. Six Feet Under? It's an HBO show. Six Feet Under. It's from I want to say two thousand one. Is that the one about the death? The family that runs the nursing home, that runs oh, the funeral no. home. No, I didn't see that. It's one of the main characters is Dexter before he was Dexter. Oh, nice. Um, Michael C. Hall. Yeah. yeah. Uh, HBO is free for a little while. Unfortunately, it's not now. I apologize for not telling you sooner. I illegally stream things. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, I do heavily recommend it. Um, and it kind of gives you an insight into like. Like, the, the youngest daughter is, like, 16, and she grew up in a nursing home, so she's, like, totally desensitized to this thing. And then the one brother comes back from out of town, and the other brother is like, No! There's a process! We help people heal! You know, and it's there's this kind of battle of, like, well, we should mix things up. And he's like, no, like, the only thing... The only thing that remains constant is sanctuary, and that's what this is for these people. Hmm. I think I got that one mixed up with Pushing Daisies. The, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I think it's a British one-season show about mm-hmm. the afterlife. Uh, which is, it came on, Pushing Daisies came on way after Six Feet Six Under. Six Feet Under, okay. Like, it is, it's a, it's an early 2000s show. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe I'll check it out. I, I know my experience with um, Morticians comes down to... Uh, what was that? There was a horror movie last year, and there was a series. Um, Haunting of Hill House has a main character who runs a funeral home, and you get to see like every single part mm-hmm. of that process. Yeah, multiple times because yeah. she's just preparing dead bodies like every day, and and that was enough for me to be like, mm, I don't want to do that. I don't even like looking at it. So yeah. yeah, I have a thing with blood too. Um, it's which is interesting to say because I've had experiences where I've had to like take care of someone while they're bleeding multiple times. Yeah. And in those moments, I'm perfectly fine. I push, I push mm-hmm. the the smell of blood out of my mind. But when I sit and think about it, I go. Ugh. For the longest time, needles bothered me and bullets didn't. Uh, like it was like the slow poke. Um, I've I've since kind of gotten over that so much so. That now, when a needle hits, like, when I have to get blood taken, I have to watch the needle go in. Like, I used to look away and, you know, poke you, 
But oh, now, now like, I, I, I have it. to see. Oh, I, I have to know it's coming. I changed that too. I think, yeah. I think tattoos taught me that. Yeah, a little Look, bit. Looking at pain and accepting well, it kind of changes your perception on it. I changed way before I got a tattoo. But yeah. <sighs> but yeah. Um, the, the other example I could think of is a horror movie called Autopsy of Jane Doe, which goes through the entire autopsy process. And it's also a banger of a horror film, if you haven't seen that. I think it's on Netflix. Give it a watch. It's really great. Great twist ending. Very fun little narrative. Um, part of me could see it having been like a no sleep story before it was adapted for film. That's how that's how good it is. Um, anyway, that was episode one hundred sixty four. We'll be back for one sixty six. See you uh, soon. To, to finish this this fucker off. So uh, stay stay tuned. We'll we'll be back. We'll, we'll be we'll see you we'll see you around. Fuckheads. Await to the days end when the moon is high. Atlanta till we stand at the shore.